0: Hey, I know you guys want to get to the podcast, but if you're a new listener, there are so many people who we have interviewed at this point, and the coronavirus has given us unprecedented access to all the people we've always wanted to talk to. Next up, Barack Obama. We just had- um, <laughs>
1: We had Lydia L- Yankovska, yeah. we had Jennifer Rivera Rice, we had Russell Thomas, Emily Pogorels, Justin Werner, Zachary James, Laura Dixon Strickling. All right, all right, all right,
0: That's just, yeah, that's just during the coronavirus, yeah. but um, That's
1: just off the top of my head during the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And uh, I think we're all looking forward to our very special episode where we hold a seance and uh, talk to the spirit of Wagner for (laughs) an entire hour.
3: Yeah, actually, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to join us for that one. She's going to take... Oh,
2: she
1: has something to
3: say. say. (laughs) You know, the world's ultimate opera fan, Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: So um, Renee Fleming and Joyce DiDonato, they both wanted to be on, so we're just going to put them on the same call because, you know, we're going to kill two birds with one stone. So that's... (laughs) (laughs) That's coming soon. We're just too busy. We
3: have have too many people booked. (laughs) We're going to put them together. Nanny seems fine with it.
0: But seriously, uh, subscribe to the podcast on however you listen to podcasts, and then just scroll down into our archives and see who we've interviewed. Usually their names appear as the title of the episode. And don't forget to share on Facebook and share on Twitter, even though we probably are not tweeting. (laughs)
1: Live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box School. Let's get
2: ready to
4: rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show that's normally live, but just a podcast for now, about opera, period. From the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chi-Town, I'm your host, George Cedarquist, with Oliver Camacho. Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, stage director, Allison Moritz joins us inside the huddle on the show to talk about opera in the era of Corona and the era of uprising. We open up the listener mailbag and we find an inquiry about our hopes and dreams for a new opera house. Two minute drill. Barcelona tests the theory of whether plants appreciate classical music and all of your opera headlines. That's in the last third of the show. Over to sports. U.S. Open going ahead as planned in August. Oliver is the tennis fan on the show, but I've grown to love tennis this summer. I've always enjoyed playing it. Started to teach my kids playing tennis this summer, and I bet you we're going to be watching the U.S. Open on network TV. The world is going to be watching. They're going to want to see how a live sporting event of that sort of prominence plays without fans. How does that read? And, of course, I'm wondering what can we in the performing arts in an opera infer from watching sports as they continue to return I think there's a lot of value there. I think there's merit there. I think sports have been very successful at that hybrid model of having fans in the stadium and a lot of people outside watching on TV. Can opera make something out of that too? Let's talk some opera.
1: Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle.
4: Alison Moritz's recent productions have been lauded as astute, imaginative, and elegantly sexy by Opera News. Her 2019-2020 season included main stage debuts at Lyric Opera of Kansas City, Opera Omaha, the Ravinia Festival, and a return to Madison Opera. She joins us from Brooklyn, New York. Alison, thanks so much for being on the show.
5: Thanks so much for having me, guys. This is so exciting.
4: You and I, Allison, spend every other Thursday with a few other folks on a Zoom call to get talking about the state of opera and the state of the world. But for our listeners at large, talk us through just one highlight of the pre-pandemic season for you, just to provide some context for our fans.
5: Sure. I mean, Well, you mentioned debuts at Lyric Opera of Kansas City and uh, at Opera Omaha, and so both of those debuts were for the same production, which is my original production of Abduction from the Seraglio, and that's a sort of famously tricky opera. And I think maybe we're going to talk about it again later in the show, perhaps when we start talking about, you know, topical themes in opera and. I guess this production is a little bit one of the modes in which I work is to to kind of try to reexamine how audiences today can really enjoy opera as it was meant to be enjoyed. And in the case of abduction, it's famously a comedy, but all the jokes land very differently now. And so the designers and I wanted to find, you know, an an element of that escapism and exoticism without without making it uh, contingent upon so much racism and so much uh, sort of really troubling t- toxic masculinity, and so, or I guess I mean misogyny, more to the point. And so we recreated it as this sort of 1940s extravaganza and put put it all in a very specific stylized container. And um, audiences really enjoyed it in both places. And it's it's a production that I'm very proud of because, um, you know, in you can cast anybody as mean and they don't have to um, be put into any kind of specific uh, makeup that alters their um, their physical appearance. The storytelling is told through details in the costuming, through details in the staging. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that we're really, those of us who love opera are responsible for questioning the canon. And if we can't deal with it in a way that's, you know, enjoyable and exciting and also, you know, sort of first do no harm, then maybe we need to keep looking for other things in the canon. Maybe we need to keep, um, like obviously commissioning world premieres. So I guess, um, that's, that's kind of one really good case study of the kind of work that I've been doing. I would say my productions tend to fall in two categories. Um, I've done a lot of world premieres and I've especially prioritized collaborating with female composers. And then I've also done some revisionist works or what I like to call Trojan horse productions of traditional operas where the aesthetic might be period and relatively traditional, but the motivations of the characters from within are actually relatively contemporary or urgent because... I am a contemporary person, and opera is my chosen way of, you know, engaging with the world, and I want our audiences to feel that too.
0: I want to just jump in really quickly to talk about abduction super quickly, because I noticed that Amanda Woodbury was in the cast, and I heard her in her Met um, broadcast debut before covid um I think it was from the met uh, where she was singing uh Con- Contessa and I had never heard I think
5: that she sang that actually the maybe the day after like she there was a a matinee performance and she sang the last Constanza in Omaha and then she flew to step in uh to Figaro right after that well which is amazing
0: She was probably a- Contracted to sing this year in the broadcast because uh, this was this was earlier this season, and I'd never okay. I've never heard that voice before, and um, it's so good. I cannot believe that there is a singer out there of that caliber that is not on the tip of everybody's lips. Like that is an incredible voice, and I just was wondering what it was like to work with her. If you realized when you had her in your cast, like oh my god, she's going to blow up. <laughs>
5: I am so fortunate because I've actually done like five abductions now and um I'm, I've had an amazing Constanza every time, but luckily Amanda and I have worked together on that role twice in two very different iterations. One was in a um an original but very very traditional production that I did for Madison Opera and then we revisited it. Um and that, so I, you know, I think obviously we can test <laughs> I can testify to the beauty and the caliber of her voice and that she can sing Constanza and you know make it look easy, which is a feat in and of itself, but she's also like an incredibly giving and beautiful collaborator and a very smart performer and I think you know um she's she's surprisingly young, and the world will be her oyster, yep for sure <laughs>
0: sorry, back yeah. to you, George. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Thanks, Oliver. Let's jump then to the recent past, Allison. So, everything goes down in March, and there is this outpouring of work, right? Right after the pandemic begins, which, and it took approximately 36 hours for the market to be completely saturated online with work, which, in my opinion, was. Uh, essentially art therapy, I think I'm going to call it. That doesn't mean it doesn't have value, but it's certainly not what audiences were perhaps expecting to see. What was your take on the work being created right after the pandemic began?
5: Well, I think, I mean, a lot of it is and was really exciting because, it speaks to this trend that's already been happening where performers are beginning to see themselves as producers. And I think uh, we're requiring young singers to learn. We were already requiring them to learn how to record themselves uh, both um, on audio and making great video for audition tapes. And, and so seeing people experiment with this form, I think is gal is and was galvanizing for me personally. Um, I have always been incredibly attracted to the theatrical and the the theatrical elements of opera. That's what's so satisfying to me. And so, you know, how easy is it for me to imagine the zoom screen as a proscenium? It's not inherently easy. And, and in that case, I can really enjoy the work of my colleagues and I can, you know, be encouraged by the fact that, you know, even in these incredibly trying times, art will continue. Um, And I think for me, it was a point of, for example, George, you talked about our kind of brain trust meetings. For me, the the impetus was, the, the therapeutic impetus that you're talking about was much less in creating content and more in finding solidarity, finding new connections amongst people. And it's only now that content is coming out of those connections. So I think everybody kind of goes at their own pace. I certainly... Um, was not in a position to create content uh, when these things first hit in March and April. Um, And I think that anybody who's listening to this who's still, you know, still working towards being optimistic again or understanding what it will feel like to create again, I think continue to go slowly with yourself and do what feels genuine. Um, One thing that I did as my own personal form of art therapy is um, I started taking drawing lessons, and it's something that I'd always loved. And I hadn't done it really seriously since I was a kid, and I wanted to find a way to be creative and to see the world anew and to feel immersed in something, but have it not be related to opera. And so, I think, you know, maybe the therapy takes two tracks. Like for some people it's therapeutic to like take opera by the reins and like, um, you know, reimagine it and kind of, um, you know, take, take control of their producerial experience or take control of what opera means in this era. And I think for other people, um, it's going to take a second and they need to, um, have a have a different kind of holistic approach towards creativity. In the meantime,
4: totally agree with you. I started taking piano lessons again What's after the, after the beginning of the pandemic, and oh my god, was it's it's harsh. It's like nightmarish flashbacks to harmonizing Bach chorales in high school, and it's brutal. But it's it's really helping me appreciate certainly what pianists do and what singers do and what composers do as well you mentioned optimism are are you optimistic right now how how has your pessimism and your optimism <laughs> changed over the months
5: yeah that's a really great great question um it has changed right um by and large i am incredibly optimistic because i I always say that the only thing I love more than opera is the people who love opera and the people who make opera. I mean, that's the, that's the connection that I, that I really enjoy is um, the camaraderie, both uh, in terms of people who appreciate opera and the camaraderie within our, uh, within our ranks. And so these past few months have made me incredibly aware of like the the wealth the incredible riches of smart creative people that we have at our fingertips at our in, in our industry um you know i would say maybe the slight pessimism that i have is is one just because it's natural in the world today to have doubts and fears and also because i don't you know we've had calls where we're talking about the future of opera and and how, what great opportunities are presented right now for change and i guess one of my fears is i don't want to go back to the old models because so many people were not being served by them and and my sort of slightly cynical self does fear that one of the reasons a hierarchy works is because it's efficient and opera is famously inefficient. And so we have to learn other metrics of success in opera rather than, you know, the shortest rehearsal time, the lowest budget. And those are really difficult metrics to find in times of scarcity. So if we can change our mindset and really imagine like what would make an opera or, you know, any kind of, Engagement or creativity—a success in these times—and and and we can move the conversations to um, like inclusivity, or um, you know, or honestly, or or ingenuity, or genuine creativity. But I like the the typical model of ticket sales is not going to serve us in the future. And I'm wondering how exactly are we going to make a case for opera? And how are we gonna show people that we're making a case for opera? Um, So by and large, I'm an optimistic person, um, but I think it's also healthy to recognize that I'm no Pollyanna perhaps.
4: Let me ask about one of those specifics then. So Uh, how quickly do we need to make our peace with using technology to move this art form forward in this present moment and how does that intersect with your work, this, this idea, and this use of technology?
5: I'm a complete, complete Luddite. And I've been able to be, adopt, you know, Dropbox, Drive, um, YouTube, Spotify, Gmail, and like my task manager. And that's about my capacity. Um, and so the idea that we're requiring, you know, much more engagement on a day-to-day basis. And for our creativity, both as a mode of collaboration and also as a platform for the final content, that's hard. It's, I find it very draining and uh, I have to, I think, choose instead to look at the opportunities that it presents to engage with new audiences, to engage, um, to connect existing works to a broader diversity of people, to highlight artists who live all over the country like I mean it's been really great George that you and I have become friends during this era and and I feel that way about many many people um for me specifically in terms of content that I'm engaging in I have a couple of world premieres that were postponed and pushed back and we've created um video content for them in the meantime and you know for one thing I think we're gonna sort of create a series of different character profiles and have teaser arias and I'm working on a VR project with a VR festival that'll be launched in September and that's a really steep learning curve especially for like I said a Luddite like me <laughs> so um, to, to learn how to speak to an, enc- an entirely new uh, category of designer and collaborator has been a treat and a challenge, and I think everybody's in that position now, so
0: what can I ask like, is, we all
5: better buckle up yeah
0: <laughs> has any of what you've seen inspired you and said oh that's actually a good idea we could do this better or I have an idea of how I can take that idea and apply it to this
5: well, I do have an idea for something that I really would like to do ongoing, and it's something I haven't seen adopted yet in opera and it's happening in film and um, fostering new connections between opera and film is something that really excites me and um, is something that I'm actively pursuing with with, along with a couple of my smartest friends so so TBD I guess
4: i dabbled in the film (laughs) side as well and it's it's kind of overwhelming in a way to sort of have to recalibrate the one's aesthetic right and realize that in film the storytelling is not in the shot but in the juxtaposition of the shots and it's like i'm working on a on a film opera project now as well and it's like i grabbed every single film book that i could find in the (laughs) library not on, on not on practical aspects but on aesthetics to like how do you tell a story with this picture A and this picture B and this picture C when you're jumping at light speed between all of them. So this is, so Allison. this is um Allison Morris, by the way, stage director on Opera Box Score tonight. This is opera in the age of Corona that we've been talking about. Let me ask you about opera in the age of uprising. And I've changed the way I talk about protest now I don't think of it as Mm. protest anymore I do think of it as uprising how do you see your work changing if it would if it will change um given all of that's happened in uprising uh given these BIPOC voices that are rightly so vocal and so prominent now how do you how do you see your work changing if you think it will in the future
5: yeah. Well, I mean it has to change. All of our work has to change in in response to the changing landscape of American culture. And I think it's it's one of the responsibilities I think of an artist to to be reflective of our time or to to be uh, processing our time and engaging with the conversation of the moment. Um whether that's, you know, to you know, deliberately ignore it or engage with it and battle with it. Um, those are, those are choices. And even choosing to ignore it is an active choice. Um, and some people, and, and, and it will be a valid one for, for some people, for some companies. And I totally understand that for me, for me, um, you know, I think in the short term, you um, I've always considered my projects relatively carefully and my design teams carefully. And I've always tried to, um, I don't know, to, to have, to encourage multiple points of view. Like I suppose what I would say to this is directors don't always encourage multiple points of view in the rehearsal room point blank, regardless of with whom they're collaborating. Right. And, and I think that, That's something that I've always had a hard time um, identifying with as a director because I don't really like the consensus in the room to come from a place of like, because I said so, authority. I like there to be a lot of buy-in, and as a result, there's typically, in most of my processes, a lot of consent. Um, Before we started recording, you know, Oliver and I were talking about this production that I did at Ravinia. And, and how much we got out of those performers in a very short amount of time. And I think if you have the talents of willing participants, um, it's your responsibility to take care of them and to, and to honor them for that labor as much as you can. And I think um, one of the things that we're finally talking about is like the performers and their bodies and souls who have been taking on much of the onus of um, diversifying the story of opera and that we need to be accountable so that's not something that happens at the tail end of the process but is baked into every single step of the process
0: I love what you're um, saying and I, I'm, I don't mean to interrupt you but I what you're saying is so great and I don't want to like paint the world of directors in one giant brush but I feel sure. that your approach somehow is more oh God, it sounds like I'm such a jerk when I say this it sounds more feminine to me the idea of collaboration and listening and getting consent. Uh, I don't hear, you know, male directors, at least the ones that I've worked with, (laughs) thinking about creating opera in this way. It usually is more of like a top-down, you know. Obviously, that's not true about everybody, but I just want, I mean, I feel like your feminineness might have something to do with it, your gender. But maybe it doesn't, you know?
5: I mean... It certainly influenced my point of view on the world, right? And the stories that I'm willing to engage in. And there are certain operas that I never want to do, or I do want to do. And that's totally a matter of taste. And yeah, part of that taste does have to do with, you know, my gender. But I think in a way, like I'm not speaking very eloquently about George's really, you know, important and imperative question. Because one of the things that's kind of very awkward about being a director is that in some ways you're in a position of a lot of power that you have a lot of control over how we use time and how we allocate certain resources within the process. But in many ways, often you're not in a position of power because uh, an artistic administrator might do the casting. or And so one of the things that I'm really, really adamant about in terms of some of the work we've been doing um, in solidarity with other directors is committing to using more designers of color Um, and, uh, having influence in casting when and where we can, and also, um, changing the pipeline of who gets to have experience as an assistant director, because there's a natural bias towards, um, selecting an assistant that you're comfortable with, or that, you know, reminds you of yourself at some other stage, or I'm not, I'm not sure it, it it happens, you know, um, And I experienced it as, as a very privileged, um, as a relatively privileged female white person pursuing a career. Like I definitely had times when I didn't feel like I was getting the assisting jobs that I otherwise might, because I was not what, you know, that, that certain kind of director was looking for. And, and I don't want people to feel like that, you know, um, I think we need more points of access, more and more ways of coming in. Like, if, if opera is a room, what I would say is right now it has, like, one or two doors. But I wish that the, the room of opera had, like, a hundred doors instead. And, like, people could be coming into it from so many different vantage points. And hopefully, like, now is the time for us to, like, you know... Bust open some walls and build some
4: doors for real. And those doors are very Alice in Wonderland doors too. <laughs> right. They're like extremely tiny, or you get That's there and so then true. you don't have the key to the door. And I, we want more doors. Um, you can find out more about Allison Allison Moritz M O R I T Z dot com. Coming up next on the show, we go to the listener mailbag. It's Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera.
1: This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho.
4: Welcome back to the show. Uh, George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho and now welcoming. Weston Williams, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hargrave onto the line, along with our guest panelist tonight, stage director Allison Moritz. Let's take a look into the listener mailbag. Heather from Santa Rosa, California, writes, I'm listening to old shows and wondering how the opera czars and czarinas would update their dream opera house. I'd like amazing ventilation with medical-grade air filters. Heather writes, plus I'm finally seeing my opportunity to upgrade the ushers to true enforcement professionals. I can never get them to stop people from talking through the last act, but now is the time for No Mask, you're out of here. All right, so my team, and we're going to start with Allison because she's our guest. What is one thing that your dream opera house has? Well,
5: this is... This is really my dream, but it's so problematic in our current era because I'm going to combine my opera house with, like, the European model of a canteen and a cafe that's open to the public. And I think that's obviously, like, two sort of problematic elements put together. But I just think that, um, like, if you've ever been to the Komische Oper in Berlin, like, there are so many opportunities to, like, have a, a window into a rehearsal space or... I just, I wish that people could go into the opera house to like get a cup of coffee and then like also realize that it's an amazing venue for performance that we would have more ways of engaging with this space of an opera house as I guess in the same way that libraries have made a lot of changes in the last decade, right? Where people can access them and use them as, um, as beautiful spaces for all kinds of creativity and productivity. I wish opera houses could serve that function in society.
4: The Kobisha Opera has to put on some of the most brilliant and most bizarre work that I've ever seen. Oliver Camacho, give us one quality of your dream opera house.
0: I think we need to take out some seats. I think that, you know, we have to get real about <laughs> about capacity. <laughs> we have to get real about capacity. We're not selling out these giant opera houses. Wait a houses. minute. Is this about
4: this coronary virus thing?
0: That's part of it. But let's just make people more comfortable and take out some seats. And, I mean, there's other ways to make up revenue. You're going to have to raise the money. But that's, what, that's what's really keeping all these opera companies up hold, held up in the first place, right? So give people some space so they can't cough on the back of your neck, you know? No corona coughs, please. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Wash those hands, Oliver. Weston Williams, what's your dream opera house got in it? Well, you know, uh,
2: me and my boy Pierre Boulez, have similar attitudes. Uh, we should blow up the opera houses. Um, is the sort of the general trend there? Uh, of course, that's always taken out of context, but I think it's 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 a true sentiment that uh, opera has been trapped um, in this proscenium setting that, you know uh, uh, for so long. And you you see a lot of like you know uh, storefront operas, smaller companies doing more experimental stagings, um, doing things that require amplification and things like that. But what I'd like to uh, see is to see that on an, on the scale of some of a company with a budget, like the Lyric or the Met, you know, where they have maybe multiple spaces. One's a black box, one's a, a more traditional uh, theater space. One's an experimental space. They use outdoor stuff. I want to see opera transplanted to different places in order to tell different stories, because the mechanics demand that, um, and that's whenever I see that out in uh, the real world, I get super excited. I remember, um, I want to say it was in somewhere in Eastern Europe last year. There was a uh, a production that took place in a barn, and you went over them as they sang on a simokrema um, of a beach with sand, and that kind of thing. You know, it makes me and the inner Pierre Boulez uh, in me. Very happy. Not to bust balls, but you're
0: you're not talking about improving an opera house. You're just talking about having more spaces.
2: Uh, Yeah. I want, I want an opera house that has multiple spaces. Like you see with a lot of concert, including a barn, apparently.
5: Uh,
2: (laughs) A bar that people can sing at. I I want, okay. Okay. I changed my answer. All I want is opera, bar, karaoke, in every new opera house. That's all I want.
4: (laughs) Moving on. Ashley Hardgrave, you've got something I know that you want in your dream opera house? What is it?
3: Well, if we're making it for today's standards, I have three words, hand sanitizer fountains. I want them (laughs) at every entrance. I want Purell bubbling out of ornate sculptures that match the architecture of the house. And I also want them to be a little bit like Disney where there's like a light show. And if it's before the show begins, it's going to also be playing electronic, like automaton versions of the Overture.
4: Last but not least, Matt Cummings, what is something that you want in your dream opera house that you can give advice to our listener, mailbag writer, Heather?
1: See, I was also going with Ashley in terms of like the opera house of today. And I think the move is to go from seats to couches because
2: then that way you can lie down and, be, and know that you're six feet away from someone. Feel like a decadent Roman emperor, which is always the way I want to feel when I'm seeing uh, uh, something by Wagner.
4: What about you, George? You do George? remind me of Nero Weston in a way. I'm I'm with Weston and and uh, Pierre. I don't care, Boulez. I really think that the best opera house right now is a pile of rubble, and that I've, I've thought this forever <laughs> is that the edifice of the opera house is the single biggest barrier to getting people. Into this art form, and people look into that room and they say, "I don't belong there." And I, I, say, we just, we just let them collapse and we let them be interesting forms in our cities, and and we take this, we take this art form to the streets. So you heard it here, it in folks, in unusual if, places. If,
0: if there's a, a protest that turns into a riot happening in your city, and for some reason the opera house gets burned down. Look out for a little five-foot-tall redheaded Jewish guy
2: on the security cameras. He's going to be staging an opera right there in the bricks.
4: That'll, that'll be me leading that uprising. Hey, Heather, thanks for the letter. Of course, you too can be in the listener mailbag. You just write us score at gmail.com. Coming up next, two-minute drill, everything you need to know about opera land from the past week, including Barcelona Testing the Theory of Whether Plants Appreciate Classical Music is coming up right after this.
1: Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. This just in. The Two Minute Drill. All
3: right. Listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week. Two Chicago cultural institutions are canceling the rest of their performances for this calendar year because of COVID-19. The Joffrey Ballet and Lyric Opera announced performances scheduled for 2020 won't be held, although there are plans to try to reschedule some in 2021. San Francisco Opera has announced the cancellation of their 2020 fall season as well, including productions of Fidelio, Rigoletto, Cosi Fan Tutte, The Handmaid's Tale, and La Boheme. There are no changes to spring 2021 at this time. Canadian Opera Company has announced that they are canceling all in person performances for the remainder of 2020. COC is scheduled to proceed as planned with the remainder of its 2021 season, including Carmen, Katja Cabanova, La Traviata, and Ofeo ed Eridici. Seven weeks after canceling its 2020 season, the Glindboard Festival announced its substitute, a mini festival, featuring outdoor performances of Offenbach's operetta Maison de l'Al. To be presented, weather permitting, according to social distance guidelines. The Teatro dell'Opera Roma has announced its plans for its outdoor summer season, including a new production of Rigoletto, The Barber of Seville, The Merry Widow, and a gala featuring Anna Netrebko and Yusuf A. a- Vazov. In a poignant and touching Facebook post, Zimbabwean opera singer Tanya Radzwa Tawengwa recounts a series of upsetting incidents during her time at the 2019 Glimmer Glass Festival. From episodes with a fellow artist going unaddressed by administration to the release of a black artist for seemingly banal behavior, it's not a great look for the festival. On June 17th, the Music Critics Association of North America announced Janine Tesori's and Taswell Thompson's opera Blue as the winner of its fourth annual award for Best New Opera. In an article in New York Times, Taswell Thompson details his journey to writing an opera about police violence, writes Taswell, quote, I did not set out with the goal of writing a protest opera or an opera about police violence. I wrote it from an obsessive need and a sense of responsibility to tell an intimate story behind the numbing numbers of boys and men who are killed. Blue is slated to be presented in January 2021 by Lyric Opera Chicago. Members of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra expect a turnover of as much as 15% on the roster this year in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis, according to the New York Times. The musicians with once stable and sought after jobs have been on unpaid furlough since March and will not return until December at the earliest. Tenor Luciano Pavarotti will receive a star on Hollywood's Walk of Fame. Per several reports, the famed tenor will receive the posthumous honor in 2021. Dallas's Art & Seek is reporting something we've been talking about for months. The Dallas Opera is, quote, killing it online. The Arts Journal details how Dallas Opera's online content is getting twice as much engagement as the Met. A link to the article, which gives a handy rundown of the variety of original content TDO Network is producing, can be found on our website. Barcelona's Gran Teatro de Viseu Opera House opened... Monday and performed its first concert since the coronavirus lockdown to an audience that didn't have to worry about social distancing. Instead of people, the Ocelli Quartet played Giacomo Puccini's E Chrysanthemi or Chrysanthemums for 2,292 plants, one for each seat in the theater. The concert was also live streamed for humans to watch. The event was conceived by Spanish artist Eugenio Ampudia, who said he was inspired by nature during the pandemic. Check out a pic on our website. The UK culture secretary is expected to release a report this week suggesting that musicals in the country's West End return with one major change, according to Andrew Lloyd Webber quote, I don't know what's going to be in the report on theater that's coming out, but I sincerely hope it doesn't contain some of the things that I've seen and some of their advice, one of which was a brilliant one for musicals that you're not allowed to sing. We hope so too, Sir Andrew. New York's on-site opera is offering audiences the chance to hear a new adaptation of Beethoven's Andi Fennigeliette delivered personally over the phone. Audience members can purchase tickets for one-on-one performances of the Beethoven song cycle with updated texts by the playwright Monet Hurst-Mendoza, delivered personally as a phone call at a predetermined time. The performances will go through July 6th, and tickets are available at osopera.org. The Sydney Opera House has launched a digital escape room where players must solve riddles and puzzles to find their way out of the iconic landmark. Who wants to sign up and go head-to-head against the OBS team? And exit stage right. French opera director and former theater of the capital, Toulouse, general manager Nicolas Joel passed away on June 18th at age 67. Norwegian actress and opera singer Edith Talog, she passed away on June 7th at the age of 90. And on this day, June 22nd, in 1763, birth of French composer Etienne Nicolas Mayul. It was the first premiere of Rossini's Adina in 1826 in Lisbon. First performance of Ernst Krenek's Karl V in Prague in 1938. 1900, the birth of mezzo-soprano Jenny Terrell. British tenor Peter Pierce was born on this date in 1910. And the first performance of Debussy's unfinished Rodrigue ishumen in 1987. And that's your two-minute drill.
1: Peter Pears in, turn, in the studio recording of Turn of the Strew with, Screw with David Hemmings as Miles and Benjamin Britton conducting. Oh. I have tried it's to learn that month. scene before.
4: It is very hard to, <laughs> to, to, to put
1: together with any pianist.
4: It's, ver- it's very, very hard to pronounce as well, Matt. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, my gosh.
3: It's Britton, so, like, you know, we've, we've had many a conversation about how challenging Britain is for singers on this show.
4: It's Opera Box Score with the whole fam Damley here tonight. George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and our guest panelist, stage director Allison Moritz. Wow, that was a huge week in Opera Land. And Allison, we're going to go to you first. What is your hot take on one of those stories? What has you up in arms? What has you sobbing in your hands? <laughs>
5: well, I'm going to do like an, a positive and a, uh, uh, the first is like, I'm amazed at this ingenuity. I love the idea of this opera for plants. I think plants are the um, ideal opera audience in some cases. <laughs> um, plants might be better than some audiences I've been in. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big one for this opera for plants idea. And I, I also liked the idea of the on-site opera hopper by telephone. That sounds really intimate and exciting.
2: The uh, Facebook post from Tawangwa um, um, was, uh, was posted, as I said, on Facebook. Um, hopefully be, we might be able to get a link or, or maybe the text on our website. We'll see. Um, but in general, it describes a number of racist um, incidents that happened at the Glimmerglass Festival and calls, uh, calls them out for not dealing with it uh, properly. I can read a little bit of the, um, just sort of the opening to give you a sense of the tone. Um, This is from the Facebook post, Uh, quote, opera is racist. And as opera companies keep offering performative statements of solidarity, I've wrestled with the need to present past racial trauma as evidence to drive home the fact that these empty statements mean nothing. The true test of humanity lies not in social media posts but in actions. And the truth is that these actions have consistently been inadequate. And that's sort of the opening to that. And that's something that I think we've seen a lot, not just from opera companies, but arts organizations uh, all over the past few weeks, um, um, putting up, uh, shall we say, thin statements um, just to uh, sort of save face in the the wake of the protests uh, across the country. Um, and the, the fact that, you know, artists of color and uh, not just artists of color, but also pe- uh, uh, staff of color, anyone on the program have to relive these traumas of racial, uh, uh, all, these, all these problems with uh, racist uh, uh, actions, policies, uh, uh, coworkers, um, and they have to put themselves on the line. That costs something. And, so. and, and what really stood out to me about that, uh, about the blog post was that she
1: talked about her experience with there being more artists of color than usual because so many of the, uh, because they were doing blue that summer. And, mm-hmm. and there were, mm-hmm. so there were, they had to hire more African-American singers than typically these young artist programs end up with. And that is not enough to actually advocate for the people in these experiences. Uh, She talked about how the the experience of having Blue done back-to-back in Showboat, which has a lot of racist violence depicted on stage, without any sort of consideration of what that would do to any of the singers and actors there. And it, it, can, it made me think of how in the wake of Me Too, there were all these intimacy coaches who were brought in to, to help with these scenes that could be very, with filming sex scenes and, and rape scenes to make sure that the actors performing them were comfortable. And it's inexcusable for these upper companies not to provide similar resources to the people who they are hiring to put on stage to bring these traumatic experiences to life
2: for the audiences especially for young artists who have so little power and ability to speak up for themselves, uh, when they're just trying to get a leg up in, you know, the getting those contexts to, to create a career. This is, this is something that needs to be taken into consideration as well, that these are also people who don't feel like they have a firm ground to speak up, uh, adequately, uh, especially when, um, when institutions do not respond to what people of color have to say about what's going on.
3: Yeah. I mean, these, uh, these, these black squares and these thin statements are, uh, are the new thoughts and prayers in response to gun violence. Mm. They're, uh, they are, they're a way for a company to say, look, we talked about it. We did it too. See, see, we're important. We're relevant. And, Guess what's going to happen when they want to do Porgy? Guess what's going to happen when they want to do Showboat? They're going to call all of these people again. They're not going to call them for any of the Anas, the Inas, or the Etas, but they're going to call them for Porgy. And that is the thing that infuriates me so much. I read, you know, I read this singer's statement and this account of all of these things that happened to her not even a year ago. And it was infuriating. It was, it made me want to write, lots of things make me want to write strongly worded letters, but this one made me actually start. To glimmer glass and and uh ask them to kindly fornicate themselves and and never do this to any artist ever again. It was it was very it was very sad to see. And yeah, this, this whole, you know, we stand with, we do these things for, and it's, it's just so thin. It is so thoughts and prayers. It's upsetting.
1: And what we really have to do is make sure that just because this problem is so pervasive that everyone really has participated in some form or another, that doesn't mean that any of us are off
2: the hook. I, th- I think the thing that uh, opera companies should be considering, um, obviously, uh, as white people, uh, mo- as most of us are in this panel... Um, uh, we, we have, there's a temptation to make it about self-reflection and trying to m- make yourself a better person, which is important, but opera companies need to have systematic plans in place. They need concrete goals. They need, uh, they can't just say, oh, we're working on it. We, they need to create policies, hire people that can help them overcome these problems and these, you know, and and I think to their credit, there are companies that are, that are looking into this. Um, But uh, Glimmerglass is only the latest in a series of companies and festivals that these stories are popping out of. And the, and the general sort of vagueness is rather infuriating. And
4: well, it turned out that we thought that the virus was medical, but it turns out that the virus is fear and that the virus is the unknown, and that is now what we are wrestling with.
0: We didn't talk about how all of opera is canceled, but that's okay. We knew that already.
1: <laughs> we knew we that knew we that, knew that, that, opera yeah.
2: canceled. that is old news, I just, Oliver. <laughs> I but you know to... what
3: ain't canceled? Pavarotti's Waka fame star. <laughs> He's going with me to LA for the ceremony.
0: I,
5: just want I can't believe old... that. That's so... Uh... Like, why? What happened? Just because of the documentary this year? Uh,
2: you know, sometimes you just need you just need something, anything, to celebrate during the middle of a pandemic is my theory. I think it's because <laughs> we
0: we're tearing down all the Christopher Columbus statues. we got to put up another Italian monument of some sort. <laughs> um, I just wanted to add that for those listeners who are not familiar, Andi Frenigalipta is a song cycle that is about 13 minutes long. So it's not that bad to like have somebody singing in your ear for 13 minutes. Um, I'm worried that somebody like Ian Bostridge is going to get the wrong idea from something like this. And suddenly you can call him up and he'll sing Vinteriza over the phone to you. Oh, I would love Oh,
1: he's, that.
2: he's champing at the bit. <laughs> that's. I mean, that's, that's the new sex line right there. You know? <laughs> okay. He George. you be your girl. Me calling, me calling Ian.
4: That's All right, let's wrap like- this show up. Good call. Bad
1: go on Opera Box Score.
4: It's been a great episode. Full house plus guest panelist, stage director Allison Moritz on the show. Good calls, bad calls. Let's see here. Oh, um, I guess we'll go oldest, youngest tonight. Oliver, take it away.
0: <laughs> um, first of all, I have to say that I finally got around to sing Aknoten after all these oh. years we've been talking about that opera. Um, I saw it on Sunday. It was broadcast on the local PBS, and um, it was as good, if not better, than I thought it would be. And the hymn to the Sun destroyed me. It was so, so beautiful. So congratulations to all of our friends that are in that, Annie Rosen, Zachary James, Anthony Ralph Costanzo, etc. You did a great job. I wanted to shout out to Zach Finkelstein, who has... Uh, now has his first episode on the Dallas Opera Network of the Middle Class Artists. So if you have been ignoring our call to action to go visit middleclassartist.com now it's super easy. You just go to Dallas Opera Network or to their Facebook page of Dallas Opera and watch the first episode of Middle Class Artists. He's a really smart guy. You're going to love him.
4: Ashley Hargrave.
3: As this is a, a sports show mixed with opera, I'm going to bring it back to sports. And my good call for this week is NASCAR. Yes, <laughs> it's NASCAR. Um, if, if you're not familiar, which would not be a surprise for for me or anybody else on this panel. So, uh, so NASCAR has uh, its first kind of... Full-time famous black driver and a guy named Bubba Wallace, and uh, he has led the charge, and the organization has supported him in banning the Confederate flag at NASCAR events. For any of you that have ever had anything related to NASCAR, this is a big deal. And then there was a really beautiful thing that happened um, over the last couple of days. Uh, it starts out tragic and then gets really touching. Um, there was a, a, a noose that was found in his driving stall. He didn't find it, but some people on his team found a, a noose and. I'm sure you can imagine the impact that that might have over over that type of organization with this type of driver. So when the lineup began, all of the other drivers that were driving at Talladega actually pushed his car to the front in this symbolic gesture of like, we're behind you. We support you. We don't know what's going on with these other people, but we have your back. So good call, NASCAR.
4: (laughs) I never thought I would hear you say that, Ashley, or anybody that is, that, what an absolutely crazy image that must have been. Weston Reed Williams. and Bubba Wallace. Well,
2: I will say that Oliver did steal my good call because you know I was going to rave about Akhenaten mm-hmm. again. Uh, so I guess my sort of secondary good call was just the whole Philip Glass weekend going on at uh, at uh, Met Opera, uh, the live streams, because it was followed up by Satya Graha, which is basically the same... Uh, Same director, same composer, same weird sort of, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) Philip Glass vibes. I literally listened to uh, um, Akhenaten three times on the day it was available. And I got through Satya Graha one and a half times before I absolutely crashed. Um, But it was was a good time. So he says, Matt Cummings. I don't know if this was a good call or a bad call. It's
1: kind of just a call. (laughs) <laughs> but while I was doing research for the show, I found out that today, on the day that we're recording, uh, Joel Schumacher died. And you might be asking, what does Joel Schumacher have to do with opera? And some of you still might be asking this after you hear the end of the story, which is that he was the director of that god-awful Phantom of the Opera movie from the early 2000s. But, like, you have to salute, utter, that just, like, a camp icon doing camp icons. R.I.P.
4: So... Hmm. Did he not also direct
2: Showgirls? No, that was, um, uh, that was uh, uh, Robocop guy. What's-his-face? Um, All right. This is- to the so internet. Did <laughs> you- he did do Batman and Robin with George Clooney. So.
4: Allison Moritz.
5: <laughs> I mean, I'm still hung up on this idea of opera for plants, so my good call is the Grand Teatro de you, and I'm hoping that I can be the first opera for puppies. That's my <laughs> my fingers sold. Yeah.
2: Sold.
4: It was Joe Esther and Paul Verhoven, by the way, for Showgirls. Uh, opera for puppies. What a great note to end on. All right, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at opera Box Score on email, operaboxscoregmail.com. Gmail.com. This podcast version of our show available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Thanks again to our guest panelist, Allison Moritz. For Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera in an empty stadium. We're back with an all-new podcast next Wednesday, June 29. More opera news, more hot takes, more cold drinks. Join us.